Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today we will be finishing up our Francis Ford Coppola in the 90s series by talking about his surprising John Grisham adaptation, The Rainmaker. Uh, but first, we will be talking about a new-ish movie. Uh, these first few episodes of the year, we're going to be looking at films that were released in the previous year uh, in an attempt to try to catch up on maybe some movies that weren't necessarily the best of 2022, but are definitely worth your time watching. Uh, so for this episode, we watched a film called In Front of Your Face, uh, a South Korean drama. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you've listened to multiple episodes, you've likely heard that, I know, I think Ariana does as well. We both really appreciate South Korean film. Yes. Uh, they have great directors, great actors, great scripts. Uh, and it's not all like one note. It's just a wide variety of types of movies and styles and tones. It's just probably one of the most uh, interesting film scenes of the last 15 years or so has been South Korea. And then this film, I would say, is not like any other South Korean film we've watched so far. Would yeah, you agree? I would agree. <clears throat> so In Front of Your Face, directed uh, by Hong Sang-soo, uh, it tells the story of a former actress, sang Kok. Uh, with a secret who returns to Seoul, South Korea, to live with her sister in a high-rise apartment. Uh, after returning to acting, she meets with a young director, uh, and he asks her to join his project. And that is the most bare-bones description of yes. this. Um, I want to tell you some things that I learned about the director, which I think is going to help inform our conversation a bit. Okay. So Hong seng Su, uh, his films typically focus on domestic realism, Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel like a movie. You don't have melodramatic plot beats. It's people in situations that the average South Korean could find themselves in. Yeah. Uh, he cites uh, Robert Bresson as one of his influences. Uh, and that was the director. He directed a Mouchette, the film about the little French girl. Mm -hmm. And then we saw another one of his movies when we were doing our capitalism uh, films. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a, it was a film about uh, a s counterfeit money and how that kind of ruins people's lives. Yes. And I would say that's very true. He actually uh, quotes one of Bresson's movies in this movie, apparently, is what I found out. Uh, Diary of a Country Priest. Uh, he also has been influenced by another French filmmaker, Eric Romer, who I have sadly not seen anything uh, by. But from what I can tell, Romer and Bresson kind of come from the same school of filmmaking of we aren't interested in telling overly dramatic stories. We're interested in telling the stories of, like, regular people, you know, struggling in regular lives just to, like, live. Mm -hmm. um, he begins most of his scenes uh, with a single shot. And doesn't really cut from that. Very static. That's true. Uh, and he usually begins with a zoom out. So he'll be zoomed in on something. He'll zoom out. The scene will take place. And then when the scene ends, he zooms in on something. And that's how you know the scene is over. Uh, and he usually does it in a single take. And what I thought was very interesting is he's very into spontaneity. In that he talks with the actors on the day of the shoot about the intent of the scene. Mm -hmm. He does write some dialogue. It was very interesting. I read that 
his workday starts at four in the morning because that's when he starts writing dialogue for the scene he's going to shoot that day. Okay. But he doesn't write all the dialogue. It'll just be, there might be certain lines that he's like, I need that in this scene. And he'll talk to the actor who's going to deliver it. Like, you know, somewhere in this scene, I need your character to like come to this point. I need them to come to this understanding and say this thing, but we'll figure out how you're going to get there while we're shooting the scene. We're going to figure it out. Um, he just has a very general structure to his movies. And in the case of In Front of Your Face, it's basically two parts. Yeah. And it's a fairly short movie, only an hour and 25 minutes. But it works because the nature of this story, you don't need it to drag on for very long. He gets to where he needs to go by the end of the film, and you don't need to stretch it out anymore. Uh, so generally, what were your feelings about In Front of Your Face and this type of filmmaking? Uh, I thought it felt very slice of life. And a lot of times when you are alone with the main character, there is this sense of mindfulness. She's constantly going, thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this feeling. So she's very aware of herself and she's very aware of her surroundings. And so we're seeing someone who's viewing the world in a realistic setting and even when she feels like she's an interloper in some scenes she acknowledges it it and realizes like i might have stepped into something that wasn't correct but she's still trying to be grateful for every moment Mm -hmm. um of course like as the description says she is holding a secret but I thought it was very interesting and in almost analyzing um, that moment. Like it's like I think it's like the second scene. It's ha- like the halfway point of the movie is when. Yeah. She, but it's not to her sister. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, what I'm talking about is the conversation that she ends up having with her sister. That's I'm saying it's the second scene. They go out and get coffee and get bread, mm-hmm. and her sister. So the first half of the yeah, movie. Her yeah, her sister's trying to convince her, hey, there's these really nice apartment high-rises that are going to be over, built over there. You should buy yourself an apartment. You should stay here. You should, uh, uh, da, da, da. And it's, her sister has this mindset that since, um, I, what's the main character's name again? Sankook. Sankook has arrived back from the States that Sankook apparently has a ton of money, which I think is... I think that is a weird perspective that a lot of places have. Outside of the U.S., you think you go get rich in America. And it's the opposite. Which is like, because, for example, there's a lot over here in the Netherlands for expats or immigrants. If you come from the States or you are an immigrant, there is this weird belief that they think that you have a lot of money. Well, it's like, think about the most people that can afford to leave the United States are rich. So if you're from the United States and you're not living there, people are just going to assume like, and I mean, in our instance, yeah, we were, I mean, technically we were the richest we'd ever been in our fucking lives when we moved yeah, here, uh, it but it was still, not like a, a we, not wealth we had inherited. It was basically just circumstance and luck that yeah, <laughs> led us to that money. Yeah, circumstance and luck, and it's also because we don't live in extravagance. Yeah, we don't but, have kids. We don't have things yeah, that would be bigger expenses. Yeah, but this woman who, like, is childless, is, like, not married, her sister is like, well, it's only going to cost $200 million 
Um, I don't know what their money. You know, the South Korean currency. A currency is like two hundred million to buy an apartment. She's like, surely you have that money. Which I think is maybe like between fifty to sixty thousand U.S. dollars. Yeah, and which isn't a, an insane amount of money, but if you're from America, just to have that sitting yeah. around is and not common. And she just kind of laughs and goes like, I, like she's like, take away maybe like three, like two zeros. I have. She has only like two thousand. And her sister's, like, confused as to why, but it's also because, well, it's like, at the, they... At that point, I don't think we know that she was an actress. No, we don't know that yeah. she was an actress. Which, when you find out she was an actress in South Korea, and that she seems to be fairly well-known, like, somebody on the street stops them because they recognize her. Well, it, it's, it, it feels afterwards you start to realize, like, her sister has never really watched her films. Yeah, she's probably more of, like... An independent or art house yes, kind of because, actress. Because like, the way yeah. that her sister was like, "Oh, she recognized you from television. You were you were only in a photograph. That they must have insanely good memory." And she doesn't correct her. She doesn't tell her that she was in multiple things. She's just sort of like, "Yeah, maybe that person did have a good memory." Um, she does play it very like coy when the person is giving her compliments. She's like, "Oh, you look great," and she's like, "Yeah, that's fine. I don't exercise. I don't really diet," but. We learn afterwards why it is that she's kind of like talking about it without talking about yeah. it. Um, and the sister has this belief that like, oh, um, like Sankok just was like living this amazing life well, she, she, in there, the States. He does a really interesting thing of everything we learn about her is through exposition. Yeah. But it never really, it never really, it never really feels like... Um, just that kind of clunky exposition. No, it just... It feels like the way two people would naturally yeah, talk. Yeah, like... And you're bits and piecing piece, it together. Yeah, yeah, like your bits and pieces. Like, it turns out that their mother had passed away and that she was coming to Korea to visit her mother, but she would never go visit her sister. And then she explains to her sister, well, I just realized, like, you know, I want to have a relationship with my nephew. He's a beautiful boy. And at first you're thinking... Because they're relating to him as a child, you think he is a child. He's a full-grown man. The mother is like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> like he's a, a rice student. cake shop, and like he yeah. owns a business." Um, I think he is married because the person that oh, okay. they serve him like might be the wife. I don't know about that. I think he is. I think he's young. Yeah, but he's an adult. He's a yes, young adult. Yeah. Like, and it's like. But it, it, I think what Senkok is doing is. She missed his childhood mm-hmm. because she. It's, it's the way they implied is she ran off to America with a man. Yes, and we never. It's never detailed if the man was Korean or if he was an American. Mm-hmm. It's just she chose to leave Korea for him, and then whenever she finally talks to her sister about like the work that she's doing, uh, did she she'd done? Didn't she open a liquor store? Yeah, she'd open a liquor yeah. store, and her mo- like. At first, her sister's like, you mean a restaurant? And she's like, no, just a liquor store because it was easy money to make. Because she knew people were addicted. Like, she kind of implies, like, people buy this because they have to have it. And so I could give it to them kind of a thing. Yeah. And so it wasn't as though she cherished her time as an entrepreneur or she was, you know, somebody who studied liquor. It was just... It was easy money. Yeah, what do these people want to, like, shove down their throats? But Liquor? Okay, I'll sell it to them. it's also probably having to do with the fact that if English is your second language, you don't want to require a job that's, like, 
You're on the phone or you're anything. You're on the phone or it's like it requires a lot of concentration when you're just selling stuff like boom, exchange of money, that's it. But I did appreciate how, because it's not something you often get in film, is an immigrant experience about America where they're just a husk, right? Like the country chewed them up and spat them out, essentially. But what is she going to do? Yeah. Like she's going to go back. That's where her quote-unquote life is. Mm-hmm. But it's just, what even is there for her? Well, I think it's also to the fact that she is returning back to her home location with the idea of flirting to go back or not. But I think she's already made the decision that she's going to stay there. Okay. And it is the other thing of her revealing what's going on to her sister and her sister happening to know, like, because they're like, oh, yeah, you have a, a, a lunch appointment. And her sister figures out, like, it is for acting. And when her sister figures it out, like, you could see that, like... Um, a little bit of excitement. It's excitement, but it's also a little bit of, like, embarrassment. Because it's like she realizes she's a little older, getting acting right now. like The type of roles she might be asked to play. a little bit too much for her. And then, um... So the question is, like, what's going to happen? And then the second part is when she does meet the director. Mm-hmm. And so in, I feel like in the first part, it's getting to know Senkulk as a person. Yeah. And in the second half, it's about getting to know her as an actress, how people who only knew her from her work saw her. Because yeah. that's what this director, his entire, he's never met her in person. He, and he, the reason he's called her in is because of this scene that like he so beautifully describes from a film of hers that wasn't like a crucial scene to the plot or anything, but it was just the way she emoted, the way she played the scene. It was something that like lingered with him. Mm-hmm. So now in this new project, he immediately thought of her because of that scene and thinks she would be a perfect fit for yes. it. Uh, what do you think of his character in the movie? Because I thought he was an interesting character. I ended up thinking that he was an inconsiderate person. Yeah. You think he's a nice guy, but as the scene goes on, you realize he's very self-absorbed. Well, it's, it's self-absorbed in the fact that, like, first of all, it was supposed to be an early, like, lunch appointment. He changes it on her on last minute. And, like, then they're moved to another location. And she just, like... She kind of like is when she sits there, she's implying she's asking, oh, are we going to eat? And he's like, oh, I thought you already ate. Oh, because she's very hungry. Yeah. And he's and she's like, no, but like you made it a lunch appointment. She's like not really saying anything. And well, she feels like she mentions how she like intentionally didn't eat. Yeah. Because she thought they were going to get lunch. And, and now then, she's like, like I don't he's know. Kind of like, oh, he'll get his assistant to go um, to another location to, another to get location food. Another location to bring food. And he's like. Oh, we'll bring Chinese food. And he's like, if we're going to bring Chinese food, he's telling his assistant, you need to go bring Chinese, like, uh, liquor. Mm -hmm. And she didn't ask for liquor. She just wants to be able to eat, but she's very confused as to what the meeting is. She understands it might be an acting thing. So she just assumes, like, maybe it's one scene. And then he's like, oh, these scenes that you were in, you were so... Like, you were so beautiful. Like, the way... Like, he mentions, like, two different scenes... Where she's like staring out and... It's all superficial, his view of her. He doesn't know who she is. Like he doesn't ask her like, oh, what have you been doing? Um, Are you comfortable acting? Like it is just how 
he has these images in his head that, of like the scenes that she basically he wants to recreate the scenes she's already done. Yeah, he's not going to challenge her with like a particularly difficult role. It's just, oh, I want to make a scene like that scene. Yeah, and then... And can you do the things in that scene in this scene? And so she decides to be completely open and vulnerable with him. Are we going to do spoilers or not? I don't want to... In case somebody sees that, because to me, I found that to be a really revelatory moment when she does talk about the secret. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't want to talk about that on the podcast. So... Like, she explains herself. She starts explaining about the way she views things and about how she finds beauty in other people. And he's enraptured by the way she's talking. But there's a moment that after you kind of evaluate the film, like, as we're talking out loud, Mm -hmm. it's almost as if she has gone too deep. Well, because he becomes overwhelmed with emotion and she just doesn't (laughs) budge an inch. Because, like, she's come... She's come to some sort of peace with herself and so he becomes very befuddled in that moment where he's like weeping and trying to figure out like what to do and if she's okay and it was just he doesn't ask her if she's oh, yeah that's yeah that's he, he never really worries so, about her no, he is so involved he is so self-involved about how she made him feel yeah that he doesn't ask her to be like are you okay are you fine like it is He's constantly asking her to perform because one of the examples being they start talking about the place that they're in. It's supposed to be like a cafe that's not doing very well and the person just left him with the keys. Yeah, so so, they're like not really open. So she's like confused as to why it's closed, but she's like, oh, this person must really trust you. And he's very dismissive about this. So the like so she is questioning this because it's almost like he's implying that the person who owns it is a woman. And so she's I feel as if she's almost like, Well, are you giving her money to rent this place out? Yeah, such an odd situation. If the place is not doing well, is she gonna close it? And he's like, Oh, but she's a great singer, it's fine. Like he's like, Oh, she'll go upon her her talents, whatever. And she sees a guitar and she's like, oh, like I used to play. And he's like, play something for me. And she openly told him I wasn't very good. So there she is like fumbling, being and it do- awkward. Yeah, it doesn't sound great from a technical point of view, but I feel like it thematically ties into some of the things she says Yeah, and about this sort of embracing the imperfection of yes. life. like. Life is perfect because it is. It's yeah. not perfect because it is an absence of flaws. But it's also it's showing how she has more care for people than he does. Because mm-hmm. at one point she's like, "Hey, what about your assistant?" And he's like, "Oh, he'll, you know, he'll. Th- he's probably stuck in traffic." Yeah, because they, they want to like, because are they going to drop her off back at her place or something? He's going to have his assistant do it. But yeah, his assistant is somewhere on the other side of town. Because he was a go-to errand for him. And so she's kind of like, aren't you worried about this person? And like... um, And I I find it interesting that that's the director character. Yes. And Hong Sang-soo, he directed this movie, he wrote it, he did all the cinematography, and he composed all the music. So I can't help but think he is turning a critical eye towards himself. This being the first film I've seen by him, I don't can't speak too much depth. But I would think, I mean, it's a character you put in your film who is a movie director, and you're a movie director. You're commenting on yourself a bit. It's like com- probably commenting on himself and probably other directors that he has seen or heard about. It is and how he's like, you know, we'll edit it, we'll do this. I, you know, 
it's it's as if he's try this director is trying to represent himself as an artist only for him to find himself with a, someone who has the soul of an artist right in front of him and he doesn't know what to do with well, you that. think that he's trying to manufacture beauty yeah. by editing it and she's accepting the beauty of life yes. where she's like yeah things aren't working out the way i wanted it doesn't nothing works out the way people want for the yeah. most part in life that's just not the way life happens uh i think it's a very interesting film about someone who's sort of is buried she's buried under debt she clearly is has struggled with depression yeah uh her career is a failure from an outsider's perspective that's what it would be yeah, labeled it as. could be like to her she's like well i got to do what i wanted to do and then and maybe it wasn't like a huge success but you know the success is being that someone has reached out to her wanting to work with her again. When that's, the, the, you have those two moments where she's shown appreciation for her work mm-hmm. by this very self-involved director and then just a random stranger on the street. Yeah. So it's those are moments that kind of remind her of what's going on. Um, I thought the way he used the camera was very interesting. Because uh, as I'm reading about him, there's a common technique he uses where, you know... He uses the camera to bring people together, but then he'll also use the camera to then separate a person. Mm-hmm. So I remember in the film, there were a couple shots, like when she's watching her nephew sleep. And there's a two shot where he's asleep and she's sitting on the couch. Then as she leans back, the camera moves so that her nephew's no longer in frame and it's just her. And I think thematically, there's a lot going on there with, you know, we appreciate these moments of beauty with people, but ultimately you have to be your, on your own. Yeah. Like, there's a sort of loneliness to existence mm-hmm. where, you know, at the end of the day, it's you by yourself in a yeah. place. And you're, because you, you can't ever really fully connect with people. And I think she finds humor in the absurd things happening to her, especially at the end, the scene where she laughs. Oh, yeah, yeah, She gets yeah. the text message from the director, who's clearly just, he still hasn't gotten it. He's, like, being awkwardly polite, but still self-centered and the way she just kind of laughs at him yeah because it's like he is a ridiculous person at the end of the day like either if she like whether she has his approval or she has his disapproval it doesn't matter to her she's just like i am who i am i'm going to continue on the path that i'm going to continue on when everybody's trying to show her the path she should go down yeah and she's rejecting all of them She's like her sister in moving back and living in a very specific condo, the director and having her do this scene for, and she's just sort of, no, I have to live life on my own terms. We think about, she ran off to America with a guy. So she, she was trying to follow that guy's path for her. Yeah. And, but none of these people have, are able to, they don't have that right to choose for her what she does. Yeah. And so ultimately it's hers and she knows that. Well, it's, it, yeah, and it's also, like, a lot of times when people present these ideas for her, it's so much, like, when they present it, they'll be like, well, it would it would be great, it would be, the, you know. It would make them feel good. It would make <laughs> them feel good, but it's also these plans that are long-term. 
Yeah, it's uprooting everything. The apartments that her sister is suggesting for aren't completed. She's only supposed to stand there in the outside and look at it and, you know, be amazed by it and think that it's beautiful when the whole construction isn't there. Go ahead and give money for an apartment she hasn't seen finalized. And then uh, the director is like, um, you know, it'll take six months to a year for us to write a script for you. And then it'll take X amount of time. And so you can go back to the States and then come back and do the filming. And nobody is considerate at the fact of like, well, does she want to wait a year? Well, because of what's going on with her, she's very much concerned about the present moment. Yeah. And all these people are doing is like looking off into the distance. And I mean, that's part of the title in front of your face. She's living each moment as it happens for her rather than getting caught up in anxiety and trying to plan her, the rest of her life out. Yeah. Uh, so after seeing this film, are you more interested to see other films from uh, Hong Sang-soo? Yeah, because I think having... what, Especially like the scenes between her and her sister, it reminded me of a lot of conversations that I've sat through with my mom and her own sisters. Like how, you know, in, a, in almost a way of daydreaming, they'll plan each other's like lives. No, you should do this, and then we can do this together, and that will be great. We'll create great memories. And well, it's, it's like this... I think because they feel so stuck where they are, they see another person as. But you could be free, and I could live through you vicariously. But a it's not bit, even right? like living through you vicariously. You, it's sort of like you're making plans to make memories when you could be making memories yes, right at that yeah. moment. We're always thinking about. Oh, we can go to disney world or we can go to this yeah, place it's like, and then it'll be so happy when like we're there sister, like she she is like uh sun oak is like sitting there being like this is the best coffee that i've drank all week this is the best bread that i've ever had and then like her sister was like oh like uh we can come here for the rest of the week and she's like yes we can do that and then she's like well if you move here we can do that regularly like she interrupts the- what, and it's that like <laughs> Oh, I found something that makes me happy. I'm just going to spam this button all day long and like get the happy thing. But then eventually it loses it. So it is that sort of, you don't need to keep consuming the thing. Just appreciate the con- yeah, moment where you're consuming it. the moment. Right? And it's sort of like, but when her sister, uh, like, her sister takes it a step beyond. Because yeah. it's like, yes, like she's all for like coming back for the rest of the week. She's fine with that. But the rest of her life now. But it, like, now her sister's like, this could be like a regular place that we go through. Be, you we'll, know, say, we'll have all these, like you're saying, we'll have all these memories at this cafe. It'll become our place. Yes. And, and when you can't like, manufacture that. That's... You can't manufacture that. And also things do change because it kind of reminds me when we, le- we lived in East Nashville. We used to like going to a specific bakery. We go to the bakery on a weekly basis. Oh, yeah. And then what happened? The couple who owned the bakery broke up. And then she kept it, and it got the real weird vibes in It there. got really weird because we're sitting there as regulars hearing her complain about her ex-spouse. And, like, I didn't have a problem with either of them. They were very different people. Yes. But it was that, oh, this place that was special, reality stepped in. And kind of made it not as the the sort of daydream fantasy that we had of it was gone. Yeah, and it was sort of like it was like it was no shade to her. No. It wasn't the she like. It, I think she a- probably shouldn't have been complaining about her uh, ex husband 
like in the bakery she owns that in was front, fully packed yeah in front of like customers and shit it was weird because it was like the weird thing is like to me the reason i started going there as a regular person was because i really enjoyed talking to the husband and um it wasn't me going like oh you're a liar and a horrible person i'm like no the person who made me feel welcome and gave me good memories is now gone so i need to stop coming in here because like it won't make me feel good. I, I enjoy your food. It's great. I hope you have all the success in the world. But it's sort of like that's why it's like this this idea of planning of it being like, no, this will be our spot for the rest of our lives. Places close down, people decide to change. Like it's the in front of your face that yeah. what Sung Hook is saying is you have to live in the moments that you're living in. Yes. And not anticipate that the next moment is going to be better. Because it might not. Yeah. The same, it was like she got caught up in that daydreaming with this man she ran off with, right? That, oh, it'll be better there than it is here. Only to now, you know, she's an older woman. She comes back to Seoul. And she's seeing things she didn't see when she was there before. Yeah. That are causing her to appreciate, like, just where she's at right now. Uh, and it's... Yeah, I think there's a film, because you have the director who's also trying to manufacture, a f he's trying to recreate an emotion he had in the past, in the future, mm -hmm. but is completely oblivious to the present. Yeah. And like who he is and the way he's talking to people and sort of, yeah, and I guess I think of those people that, you know, we would know in the United States, and I think even here in the Netherlands to some extent, it's a very socially planned culture. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just not my personality is I'm not a person who wants to go like, oh, we're going to plan this thing. And then when we go, it's going to be this good. And I'm going to feel this way because I've learned that that's just not the way things happen. <laughs> like, well, I think it's also this thing that like you can't manufacture that feeling because it's just going to happen or not. You don't know how you're going to wake up that morning. You don't know what's going to happen during the, you know the middle of going to that place if something shifts if someone talks to you in a different way and it just kind of like will make you feel completely alienated um i do feel that having moved and to a certain extent because dutch is not our native tongue and we have yet to really become even like even close to fluent it's just like we're like i don't know if i could carry on a conversation in like a first grade class yeah, and <laughs> like, like, that's, yeah but the thing is because of that to a certain extent you start to focus on how you're feeling and almost like be grateful at the times when things are super good and then also just not take offense to that you didn't have like a friendly conversation with every fucking person that you saw um, it does shift your gears a little bit versus in the States, this is manufactured idea, sort of like the idea of like, as a kid, if you went to McDonald's, McDonald's was going to be great every fucking time. Like you're well, so happy it's McDonald's. Not even that, but like when we went to Disney World yeah, uh, and w there were no children with us, it was you, me, your adult brother and your mom. And I was more interested in kind of eavesdropping on the people around us than I was the sort of manufactured things around us. Because uh -huh. it was just fascinating to me seeing people who were miserable in a place that has been labeled the happiest place on earth and thinking of how much money that they had put aside to come here, how much... And I think the, the big problem was how much hype they had put into this trip. Mm -hmm. And that now they were here, 
they couldn't be happy in that moment because they were so they were focused on all the things that weren't going the way they had wanted them to go kind but of thing. But the thing is like the funny thing is that for those people when if you talk to them 6 months afterwards it was great. <laughs> it was great because they have forgotten about the bad stuff they'll focus on the good stuff which is fine. But, but they're always living in search like it's the director right they're always living a life trying to search for recreations of joy from the past up ahead without realizing that wasn't that joyful for you anyway when you were there like it wasn't what you well, remember I think it's it to be sort of like it's this the way that i say it's mindful and meditative when she is like saying thank you for certain things she's not allowing for certain things to wreck her and one of the examples is she goes to eat something with her sister she gets some sauce on her blouse she wipes it off. You can't really tell, but her sister's making a big deal out of it. That they need to go into, back home, and they need to put stain remover on it and all these that things. That she yeah. needs to go change. And, like, at one point, like, she stops and is like, nobody will notice it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, also, if I was in America, I wouldn't have cared about this. So why would I bring that with me after I've learned this from being elsewhere? Yeah. And, like, that is when she finally says that, her sister, like, relinquishes and stops like pestering over her because it's like the mo- the way that she was like if i was some like where i was before this wouldn't have mattered so why am i making it a big deal yeah. right now i don't I'm, just, I'm not gonna let it ruin my day and it's just sort of like after hearing her like so firm it's her sister goes okay that's fine like i'm gonna drop it and it's just her also bringing in like even though she had a negative experience living in the states She's also bringing the positive stuff with her. She's bringing the stuff that she's learned. And that is something that we rarely ever get in film, especially when we consider, like, we don't get women around this age Mm -hmm. uh, represented in film just being this way. What we're getting is, like, within Western film is mostly just having a reoccurrence of crisis again and again or a reinvention of yourself this is not a reinvention of this person this is her just fully accepting herself yeah you think western women in films like this are usually dissatisfied there was something lacking in their life they need to change yeah. something they and to... with Senkol, she's like my life was what my life was and my life is what my life is right now and yeah. i have to live in satisfaction with what has happened to me because I can't change anything that happened before. Yeah. I can just be here and do this. Yeah, so like you're saying, it's very zen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think even in the the style of the movie, he is not interested in any sort of agitation of the audience, overexcitement. It's just like you were saying, slice of life. It's simple. It's just these are people, and they're talking. And some people learn things. Some people just aren't ready to learn it yet. They aren't there. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm interested to explore more of Hong Sang-soo. I know there's just so many South Korean directors that often we kind of focus on the ones who get the biggest attention, like Bong Joon-ho or Park Chan-wook. Which you like deserve yeah, all Yeah, yeah I mean, and they're incredible. Yeah. Uh, but they're sort of like the big blockbustery almost, of South Korean art film. Like when you think about like Snowpiercer or Okja, it is more of a Steven Spielberg-y kind of thing, well, I think but it's, good. <laughs> it's more in your face as to what the message is, but this is a movie that like, um, if it was made by white people, it would get like a lot of attention. 
<laughs> we'll be like Diane Keaton or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but they, like, again, it would have to be quirky because it reminds me of fucking watching, like, the Family Stone. Which is has a similar older character in a similar situation, but mishandles it horribly. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. just more like her just being like, this is life, kiddo. What the fuck do you expect? Yeah. Yet the least you were raised by liberal people. Yeah, it has to be that kind of, like... We can't take ourselves too seriously. We have to be, you know, ironic, detached Americans. While also just telling the younger generation that they need to get over themselves. Well, then also overly sentimental, too. Which this movie is not. And it could. It easily could have been a very sentimental movie, but... Uh, Hong Sang Soo refuses to be sentimental. And they, they, at the least in this film, which is something uh, by touching it, by, by remarking about how like Diane Keaton would tell the younger generation to get over themselves. In this one, in the short scene that they have with the nephew, all they can say is just like how sweet of a boy he is. How like proud of him they are. Yeah, yeah. there's never a moment being like, oh, I wish he was this. No, they're just happy with him, which is kind of nice <laughs> which once again it goes back to that title in front of your face so often in america you have parents that are dissatisfied with what their children haven't become instead of being happy with who their children are yeah and it's because of that sort of predatory brutal capitalist kind of nature of america not that south korea is some sort of like socialist utopia or anything uh but it's an it's enough removed from the united states culturally and still with those well, least, those like, this, influences from Asia in terms of, like, philosophically. Well, at the least, like, within this film. I'm yeah. sure there's other oh, yeah. films that talk about, that like, like, the pressure mm-hmm. that they have. But within this film, it was just a nice thing of just being, like, oh. Or, yeah, Hong Sang-soo is very much attuned to being in the moment. Uh, because I know, I think he is an older director. Because he's been making films. Yeah, he's 62 years old, so he has kind of reached that age where now we're... We're contemplating where we are, mm-hmm. and we understand that there isn't a big, long path into the future at 62. Like, he could live for 20-plus years, right? Or he could die three years from now. Like, So it's just sort of you have to be in the moment and appreciate just what is happening around you. Well, we have watched so far in this kind of mini-series we're doing, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, put out in 1992 by Coppola. Then we watched Jack, which came out in 1996. And then the very next year, Coppola had another movie out. It would be his last film of the 90s. Uh, The Rainmaker, which is based on a John Grisham novel. I looked it up, and I think there's been 10 adaptations of John Grisham novels to film uh including uh your favorite movie christmas with the cranks was based on a book he wrote called (laughs) surviving christmas yeah uh so the rainmaker unlike christmas with the cranks is a traditional kind of john grisham legal story uh struggling new attorney rudy baylor played by matt damon resorts to working for a shady lawyer uh reuniting coppola with mickey rourke who he last worked with and i believe rumblefish i don't think he was in uh the cotton club uh, he meets a paralegal, Deck Schiffelt, played by Danny DeVito, who I don't think had ever worked with Coppola at this point. Uh, when the insurance company of Dot Black, played by Mary Kay Place, who we are definitely going to talk about her because I think she's the best thing in the movie, uh, refuses her dying son coverage, 
Uh, Baylor and Schiffelt team up to fight the corrupt corporation, uh, taking on its callous lawyer, played by John Voight. Meanwhile, Baylor becomes involved with Kelly, Claire Danes, an abused wife whose husband complicates matters when he confronts Baylor. And if that sounded like a lot, that's because this movie has a lot of things happening in it. It's the sad thing about this film. It's a it it feels like a lot, and then it feels like nothing. Well, I'm watching it. We're going to talk about how some plot points literally go nowhere. And I thought, like, were they planning on a sequel or something? <laughs> um, because, or is there like another John Grisham book that continues this story? Because I kept thinking, wow, this would have made like a good HBO prestige series where you would have taken your time. You would have spotlighted some of the characters, kind of devoted a few episodes to them. So we really kind of get to know who they are. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, you know, I think it just comes in a little over two hours, like two hours 15. Man, a lot gets rushed through. And a lot of great actors just kind of get wasted. They, they don't really have room to breathe in the movie. Danny DeVito is fucking, like, wasted in this, uh, like, film. Well, like, he has ba- good moments, He has but... good moments, but they barely use him. All he's there is just to be a supportive character for Matt Damon. He's very exposition-heavy. Yes. and then He's Matt, there to explain like, the legal process in the healthcare industry. Matt Damon yeah. with his, like, just southern accent, which is just, it's... I don't. You didn't find it believable. I didn't know how to feel about it because it's just it. Oh god, it was just a lot, and it's just like, and I think it's also having to do with the fact that, in to some extent, it it hits close to home because it's supposed to be based in Memphis. Yeah, it's based in Memphis, and they filmed in Memphis. Oh yeah, it's it's on location, which is something uh, you don't get too often these days, and so that I, I really like that. I think. Coppola definitely I can tell he enjoyed making this movie and he really believed in this movie because nothing here feels like he's cutting corners or that this was just purely for money I mean money was involved I'm sure it's John Grisham adaptation Mm -hmm. but he definitely puts his own like paint strokes on it It, it's there's funny like there's some genuinely funny moments in the movie it's just it goes off the rails one too many times it is, and feels a little hammy. What it is, it's a beautifully shot, made for tele, uh, yes, television. Yes, 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 yes. That's what it is. Like this should have been a lifetime film, but it's like the shots are beautiful. The shots oh, are yeah. so great. I mean, I think there was a scene where I just said the lighting in this scene is incredible. Yeah, like they're just, and it's Coppola, right? He has people on his crew that know what they're doing because yeah. they've been doing this for a long time. But yeah, the script, I think, was bloated. It just overloaded with stuff. It was a lot because, okay, so um, Rudy, Rudy. (laughs) Oh my God. It came out. So Rudy uh, is like really desperate for a job. Decides to work over at Bruiser's, like... Who's, like, uh, Saul Goodman. Like, yeah, he's, he's, like, the Saul Goodman. Obviously a criminal. Like, obviously a lawyer for, like, organized crime. And the funny There's thing no... is, like, when I saw Bruiser, I was just like, oh, man, you know very well if Mickey, every, uh, like, work was not available, that would have been a Tom Waits, like... Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that would have been his other go-to. Yeah, because, yeah. like, they, say, they had the same fucking facial... Uh, and you, like, I can, I can like, like, imagine Tom Waits saying those lines, like, yeah, yeah, voice kind of thing. <laughs> Exactly. Like, but, and it's, let's talk about that bruiser character. I thought this character was going to be crucial to the story. Nope. They even bring up the feds are investigating bruiser, right? So you're like, oh man, where is this going to go? 
literally nowhere. Yeah. It is just... And I don't know if, like, was it's, he supposed to be a bad guy or a good guy? Like, wait, I don't even okay, know. So he works at Bruiser. <laughs> Bruiser's like, you know what? You need to fucking follow those ambulances. Listen to the... Uh, listen to Deck. <laughs> Deck was his... Who's not a lawyer. Yes. Deck was a... Was he like an auditor or a bookkeeper or something? He used to work in accountant. Insur- and like, yeah, in insurance, I think. Hated it, got bored, decided to go to law school. But he has... Hasn't been able to pa- pass the... But he, he has argued in trials. They just haven't checked up on because if he has a license. Because there's many people in Blizzard's yeah. organization. So, yeah. uh, he's what they call a paralawyer for some reason. I don't know They just use the term they invented. And so, they're just like, oh, Bruiser's being investigated. He's been shown, like, photographed with, with like, mafia people within the Memphis area. And they're like, let's start... Uh, a little side business. Uh, like, no, not not a side business. They decide they're going to open their own place. Because, oh, their own office, yeah. Yeah, because Bruiser's like, oh, hey, here's some money. Thanks for the work. And Danny DeVito's character, Deck, is like, hey, we're going to get fucking fired, so we might as well open our own place. Yeah. And Rudy, who's supposed to be, like, you know, he's just a poor southern boy, and he's just out there helping people out. But I've, when I think about it, the Rudy character has one of those problems you see with protagonists in these types of stories. I don't know who he is. He, like, almost exists purely as a cipher for the audience, like a yeah, stand-in. Because, because, like, what does he believe in? So it's, I mean, I think he wants to help people, but no, I don't know. Like, it's because, hard to okay, tell. There's this constant thing of pointing out that he is poor, had to work during uh, during law school. And let's be honest, nowadays, that's Pretty not common, uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like everybody has to work through college now. Yeah. And, but, you know, they're supposed to be like, you know, there's rich kids that were able to go through. So they're trying to also make like that whole division. Like he went to take the bar exam and there's this prim and proper girl who obviously aced it. And then uh, guys like fucking with each other and him explaining, you know, first year to law school, everybody loves each other. Like fourth, people are hiding shit. There's a ton of voiceover in this movie. Yes. And it's not the good kind of voiceover. It's the, the voiceover is acting as a crutch for the movie, <coughs> which is like when you read screenwriting books and they talk about voiceover, this is the thing they say never to use voiceover to do is voiceover should be used sparingly and it should not be used to make sure the audience understands what's going on. Yeah. And every scene with voiceover is there to like clarify that the dum-dums in the audience <laughs> know that like this is what just happened and this is what's going on or like and, the editing. It seems like they skipped over a bunch of time. Yeah. So then the voiceover is like, "Okay, well yeah, while well, you didn't see us, we were doing these things so, and that's why yeah. we're here so now." So he goes to work for for Bruiser. They're about to go do their own thing, but before I forget, when he's like interviewing with Bruiser, he's like, I've got two clients. These are the two clients we mainly see him with. There is Birdie, the old lady that wants to do Will, that she keeps telling him she's going to cut, cut, cut every like grandchild left. Well, yeah, she's wanting, yeah, to get all of her family out of her will. They're and ungrateful freeloaders. Dot Black because her uh, her son is sick. He has leukemia. Leukemia. And they wanted a certain procedure and the health insurance company yes. would not approve it and it was far too expensive for them to pay out And of so they need in this film to show you what a great guy Rudy is in where uh Rudy is like talking to Birdie and he's like, is that an apartment? Because he just got evicted. She has like a little uh, apartment over her garage. Yeah. And so we're supposed to relate at the fact that poor dude got evicted. 
She's going to allow him to... Evicted? Do we remember one? No, he just was... Just he just has of, all this stuff in his car. Yeah. He's just like poor. He got like... and that. He's like, just a poor Memphis boy trying to practice law. <laughs> and how Deck looks at his papers, he's like, yeah, this is a fucked up renting. And then he's dealing with uh, uh, like Dot, uh, Dot Black and uh, Donnie Ray. Her son. Who? And, let's. I want to talk about the Blacks a little bit. Because there's some people in there that were just like, hey. <laughs> because I think... Johnny Whitworth, who plays Donnie Ray, the sixth son, was did not do a very good job of it. It was very much that kind of like, oh, hello, Mr. Baylor. <coughs> Again, it was lifetime performance yeah, it was like, sick. Oh, that's an actor playing sick. Yes, because like what they would do is basically they would uh, put a lot of shine on him like he's constantly sweating. And then put like shadowy makeup on the bottom of his cheeks to make him look like, you know, he's sunken in. But there's something I don't think you knew about the guy who played the um, father, Donnie Ray's dad. He's played by Red West, who you probably have never heard of. He is known for being a close confidant and bodyguard for Elvis. He was also like a movie stuntman. I think he might have met Elvis like on the set of one of his movies. Yeah. So he's one of what they would call the Memphis Mafia, which was Elvis's like group of dudes that were like very shady hangers on. Yeah. Yeah. he, does he have a line of dialogue in the maybe one Barely. at the end in the, the courtroom yeah, he, yeah, yeah. when he has the photo? <laughs> but I did not understand what the hell was going on with that character that at all. Is obviously a neglected autistic man. That is, he does not speak, and so he sits in an old car in the backyard all the time. Like he is, like, even go, before the son dies. Like it's not a, gr- no, it's kind of a grieving gr- thing. He's grieving at the fact that his son is like sick and, and that his wife is, can't mm. do anything. And when I say that this is like an untreated, undiagnosed autistic man, I don't mean that in a in a bad way. It's, it just seems like that's the way the characters play. It's just like he is shut down. Yeah. He's emotionally shut down, and nobody's really like reaching out. And everybody's kind of like, "Oh, just oh, he's just like this." Because, oh my god, if he just well, accepted what was going on. His wife was like, "Buddy, get out of that damn car, buddy." Buddy, I told you, <laughs> buddy, this is but important. I would say, talking about Mary Kay Place, she's the best thing in the movie. Oh yeah. And it's, I think Mary Kay Place is this actress where anytime she's in something and people note that she's in it, they always say like, incredible. Yeah. But I don't think she's gotten the recognition that she deserves truly like on a mass scale. She is, I don't think she's ever been in in anything where she phones it in. No. She plays everything straight. She is committed. You, that is, She is that character. Because here's the thing. The side-by-side thing that you could do with her acting on this film is when she's reading the letter from the insurance company. Mm. So when she reads it to Rudy, she's kind of like very dismissive. She's kind of like, aren't they fucking assholes kind of thing. But then she goes to court to read it. And like how you could feel the tension in her jaw, the way her mouth is. And how it's almost humiliating to some extent to have to read that letter out loud. But she's sort of like, I am going to get you guys somehow. And then she gets cross-examinated by John Voight, which is also the weirdest. Well, we'll I'm talking about John Voight. <laughs> that southern fat cat. <laughs> like, because I think he was perfectly cast. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what we know about John Voight, this was perfect role for John Voight. <laughs> Uh, but Mary Kay Place, we've been watching like a lot of TikTok videos and things that talk about acting in like a very yeah. serious way. And so one of these ideas that I've kind of come up with that I think is that 
acting, and I'm not talking about all acting. If you watch like some made for Netflix movie, you're not really seeing acting, you're seeing performing. Yeah. That like acting is almost like a shamanistic thing when it's done like purely and with the right training and the right focus because a good actor does dissolve and they become the character. And it's not necessarily like um, method acting, which I think is a little overwrought and silly, but it's just in the moment of the scene, you are the person. And that's where I think Mary Kay Place is so good. Yeah. Is that I believe everything from her. She is that mother. Her son is dying. No one is helping her. And then the anger and rage that she feels towards the insurance company in the courtroom feels like this is her. She lived this. Yeah. And it's, I want to just shout out to another movie that everybody should see, Diane, which came out a few years ago, which was made purely as like a showpiece for her. It was some younger director who just loved her and wrote a movie with her in mind and got her cast in it. And so it's not a plot heavy movie. It's just a movie about this character. And it's once again, it's a reminder of she does that sort of disassociation from Mary Kay Place and when that camera is on her and she's speaking, she is dot black in this movie. There is no Mary Kay place. Yeah, because we've seen like interviews with actors. I think uh, the guy that played uh, Pablo Escobar on Narcos was explaining on how when you're doing good acting, your body doesn't know it, and so yeah, yeah, yeah it's that you can't think that you're acting. Yes, because he's like. Because I, he's like, I finish uh, scenes where he's like, I'm still shaking because my body was in the moment in that feeling. So he's like, that is, he's like, it's one of the best slash worst things about acting. Because to detach from that when you go home, if you're a really good actor, can be very hard. Yeah, Especially if you're playing like a really traumatic character. And that makes sense as to why you have certain actors that take pauses between works. Because of Tony Collette's story where she was like, I told my agent, I'm so tired of doing these like dark horrible depressing movies give me something light i want to do something light and then the script for hereditary comes across and she's like i have to do this movie. <laughs> yeah damn she it. was like god fucking damn it <laughs> yeah so it's and i think that's how you find the good actors so if you're watching a movie and you want to know if someone is a good actor are you aware that they're acting or are you lost in what they're doing yeah. and so for some actors it's not that they're bad actors it's the role isn't written well or there's not enough on the page or the director hasn't the director given them enough, hasn't given enough. And to, for them to understand what's happening we, to this character like yeah. inside. And we talked about how I don't think Coppola is a good actor-director. I think Mary Kay plays just a naturally She's good actress. She's just naturally good. Because when you look at the other performances in the movie, it's very hammy and like... This sort of like southern fry, like <laughs> when you know, when you get out like the handkerchief and you're like, I'm just a pole country lawyer. <laughs> and then you have Mary Kay Place, who's this like point of light in the movie. Where you're like, it's so good. Um, because let's talk about speaking of, I'm just an old southern lawyer. <laughs> let's talk about John Voight playing a corporate asshole. Which I'm like, hey, John Voight, I think we found how you should be typecast for the rest of your career. Uh, which is great. He's great as this like hammy over the top you hate him yeah and the whole movie coppola wants you to hate this man and you fucking do you yeah. hate this guy I from top to bottom my favorite part one of my okay i had two favorite parts of his performance the first one was when they're like doing a deposition where they're about to question people and it turns out that like one of the people like jackie played by virginia madison 
we don't really realize until Lord of the Ends movie that she's like gonna play that character. He's like, where is she? Oh, she she quit. She was like a staffer at the yeah. Hell she Church. was in charge of like uh, Donnie Ray's like Some file of like claims. Yeah. yeah, with claims, she quit. Da da da. And they're like, okay, so only like one out of the three people that I want to ask, like Rudy's saying this, are not here. And like, so Rudy's like, you know, confronted with this line of lawyers and it's just him. And he's like, tell me, do you remember when you sold out? Ugh. Or was that so long ago that you forgot? It's the kind of thing, it's, <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? Seinfeld? Yeah. The jerk store called. <laughs> <laughs> and they're running out of like it's that, John, it, that's the line you think of on the drive home that you wish you had said in the movie. John Voight's <laughs> character is just smacking his lips, not saying anything. <laughs> He's like, oh, you little upstart boy, speaking to me that way. <laughs> and then, like, the great, like, there, and then there's, like, actually, it's like, there's, there's three moments. Then there's the moment that he is going after like Jackie's character on the scene being like, you were a whole hog. <laughs> because she had like an affair with yeah. like a manager or something. Yes. And he was like, you're just a dirty whore. <laughs> and he's like, and then like the moment that he starts talking to the jury during it, he's like, and if we allow this to pass, the government oh, will yeah. be our health insurance. Yeah, yeah, that was my favorite part. Where and you, because it's like he's the villain, so you are supposed to be against him. And one of the points is like, and there might be a, a, a American government paid uh, health insurance. And it's sort of to John Voight, he probably like, well, oh yeah, that is a bad thing. <laughs> but like to Coppola and the person who wrote the script and everyone else is like. No, that's not bad. Why are we talking like this? But I also want to point out, like, the weird cameos in this movie. Dean Stockwell shows up for, like, five minutes as a judge who then dies off camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, like, tag teams with, with uh, Don Voight yeah. to, like, try to get Matt Damon to, like, I'd almost say Mickey Rourke's character is a cameo, too. Because as important as we feel like he is at the beginning of this movie, he just, he shows up one time near the end as almost like deus ex machina. Where, in like, in those old Greek plays where, like, literally you would have a god descend who would then solve the conflict in a really like ham-fisted way where they're like oh let's make a call to bruiser and of course bruiser knows who to go to and what to do yeah 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 because he's connected but it's like once again i don't know why that character's in there and then you have like we they were doing a whole thing with uh they find out that the insurance company has bugged uh-huh. uh baylor and dex phones in their office yeah, yeah so yeah. they string them along by feeding false information so they imply that they're like uh, paying off one of the jury members to get him on their side. And, uh, and we see, like, photos. So I couldn't really tell who it was in the photo. So we get to the courtroom scene, and you have Drummond, uh, John Voight's character, go to accuse this jury member of being on the side of the prosecution. And I looked at you and I go, is, is that Randy Travis? <laughs> and it is. And I'm like, what? And he's in one scene. And he's like, okay. you son of a bitch, you're calling me. Explain who Randy Travis is for those people. People know. Who... Okay, I mean, I guess I was like going to go, people know who Randy <laughs> Travis is. But that's because I grew up in Tennessee. Randy Travis is a country music singer whose like, peak was in the 1980s. For some reason, I always associate him with like Reba McIntyre. I don't know why. Probably when I was a child, I saw them like appear in a commercial together and my little autistic brain was like <laughs> i will associate them together for the rest of my damn life but he did have like an acting career uh he started acting in 94 he was in baby geniuses <laughs> <laughs> we were looking at his <laughs> 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 
he was in the National Treasure sequel. Um, but yeah, he always has like little small parts, and that was just another case of I was just like, what? <laughs> like, why was I expecting Randy Travis to show up? But yeah, you have that. But the funny thing is, we haven't even talked about a major subplot in this fucking movie, what? which is uh, Claire Danes. We have totally just not even spoken oh. about that. That's how bloated this movie is. Okay, so what I really love about this film is that there's never a moment where, like, so uh, Rudy and Dex spend a lot of time in the hospital trying to convince people to, like, sue if they got injured. Well, they just kind of wander around from, like, room to room and find out why people are there. <laughs> yeah. And if it was an accident, they're like, we could sue who's responsible, which is, yeah. I mean, probably very realistic, right? Yeah, and because that's, Bruiser wants them to do that. They're ambulance money. chasers. And, you know, Rudy at first is like, this is disgusting. I don't want to do this. He sees Claire Danes and he's like, I knew the moment that I saw her what was going on. Because, like, he suffered from the hands of an abusive father. And so, yeah, her husband, a- played by Andrew Shue, Elizabeth Shue's brother, who was also on, I think, Melrose Place. Because okay. when I saw him, I was like, that's a Melrose Place dude. I couldn't think of his name at the time. But, like, um, the, that I think that's one of the weird things, and it might be because of the era of this film. It is the fact that, like... It's very sexist. It is this weird thing where, like, Rudy is like, yeah, my dad was abusive, but, you know, he's still my dad. Kind of, like, kind of vibe that he's giving, even though he's like, nobody should hurt you. So Yeah, but then, like, her husband deserves to die, in Rudy's opinion. I'm like, but I don't understand. Is playing, is supposed to be playing, like, this, you know, young, ignorant thing. And, you know, What's that sort of stand by your man type, yeah. Tanny Wynette type of Which, character? And, but then, like, Rudy's like, do you have a dad? She's like, no. <laughs> I'll be your dad. No. Like, <laughs> do you have an older brother? No. Then who's going to beat the shit out of her like, husband? Then who's going to take care of you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she takes care of herself. It's, I don't know. Like, it's not like this empowerment thing where it's sort of like finer. It's just like, and she's trying to explain to him, like, listen, that's great. You're trying to help me, but he would kill me. And I, I think it's also this weird thing where Rudy doesn't truly believe her when she's like, he would fucking kill me. And even Deck is kind of like... He's like, she's a dumb woman. She's probably exaggerating. <laughs> Deck, Deck is like, he hit her with a bat. Aluminum bat, yeah. Aluminum bat. And he's kind of like, oh, no, you know, you need to file for divorce. And... Uh, she's like, if I file for divorce, he's going to lose it. And so uh, she... Like, they are, like, really there's posing a, it up in say, the hospital. There's a lot of time spent contemplating whether her husband should be murdered. <laughs> and if that's ethically and legally okay to that, do, which is also, a weird subplot. It's also more, like, within Rudy's, like, mindset. He's telling her to leave while he's kind of like, he's got to die. Well, because Rudy shows up to help her move her stuff with a loaded handgun. And I'm like, yeah. uh, what were like, you planning on doing? It's, so the hospital scenes are very weird because he's like carrying her and she's only wearing this gown. So your assumption is she's naked underneath. And, like, he's putting, like, pillows underneath her legs. We're talking about Rudy, not her husband. Yeah, yeah, Rudy. And then the weird thing is, like, at no point is her husband ever walks in on this guy, like, with his wife, like, hanging out. And I, it's like they spend hours together. Well, they imply something about, like, his family. Like, was his family supposed to have money? Because they didn't live in, like, a nice place. So I, when the family, like, she was like, oh, his family, like, 
protects him or something like uh, it wasn't I, clear. It, was, it was so much going on so you really couldn't get like pay attention to the details and you know she didn't go to college because she wasn't able to just a part of me wish that she's a helpless woman for rudy to save it's yeah, an old and trope i i almost wish that she was more southern trash <laughs> yeah because she just feels like and eh, she's probably like you know Maybe works at like a department store. No, she like, ends up working like a jewelry, oh, jewelry store. store. So it's like it's not the lowest level service job, but it's not like she's gonna be making a ton of yeah, money. Yeah, and like uh, it's supposed to be like she gets beaten up to, again. He comes in to save her. We don't have any conversation about the fact that like her manager sets up a fucking bed in the goddamn jewelry store because it seems like for her pro- to sleep. Yeah, like, her manager's like protecting her. And like you know, once they, again, that's another thing that I feel like got lost security. from the book or something. And then it's supposed to be like, oh well, you know, she's gonna stay. Like he he's so good. He's such a good man. She's not gonna stay in his apartment. She's gonna stay with, with Birdie. But to I, be taken care we're of. Talking about this is the thing that makes no sense about Matt Damon's character. I have never in my life heard of a lawyer that spends so much of their free time with their clients. Yeah, he lives in a client's apartment. He's gonna end up in a relationship with a client. He brings sick little Donnie Ray over to hang out at Birdie's house. Yeah, Donnie, like it's supposed to be. You know, he went above and beyond. These were not. It's very unrealistic, though. These are friends and family because it's like some of the stuff that's dropped off is having to do with the fact that um, Miss Birdie. Wants to cut people off her her will. Her grandson and the wife appear one day, and the the you know the the great daughter in law is like snooping in Rudy's room, being like Birdie wants to talk to you, and like then he hints to them like Hey, Birdie has a ton of money, just to make them be nicer to Birdie. But we never get any more information out of that except Birdie being like I'm gonna add you to my will, honey. I like you so much. And that's dropped, and it's just sort of like... And I'm thinking about, we haven't even talked about two other actors in this movie who are very well-known actors that show up. Like, Danny Glover plays the replacement judge. Yeah, yeah, Who they go, oh, he was a civil rights lawyer. And it's like, oh, so we're all black... Uh, all black people in the legal system, they have to have come but from the civil rights movement. it back to the fact that, you know, Rudy was inspired to become a lawyer because of the civil rights. You know, as a, as a white boy in Memphis, okay. Uh, which is like... Well, which know, could happen, right? Which, but you're also it like, it just feel like John Grisham doing a little like, see how open-minded I am. I love me black people. You can't call me racist. <laughs> just, um, and then the, like, CEO of the uh, health insurance company who shows up, like, at the end of the movie... Roy Scheider, uh, <laughs> Officer Brody from Jaws, which, th- that was weird. Like, Danny Glover makes sense. 1997, Danny Glover's still a pretty well-known name. I mean, there's four Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people, like, Danny Glover, you're like, yeah, I know, he's in Predator 2, all that. Um, but, like, Roy Scheider is an actor I associate with the 70s, which, like, the French connection and Jaws... I don't really think of him when I think about, like, 90s movies. But then he would show up in cameos like that. So I wonder if, like, he got to a point where that's all he would do was, I mean, I'll come in for a day. It, it could be a way, of, like, to keep his, like, sags. Oh, uh, yeah, insurance. so you have insurance and all that, yeah. But, I, the so, the one thing I do want to mention is, so, because this is based in Memphis, 
you would think that we would have a little bit more of a colorful cast, but it is 1997. So there's only one black there's person. There's only one black person, and then like when you know Don, like Donnie Ray uh, dies, that's when like you see like a lot of black people inside their house. And you're like, like, where, what? (laughs) What's going on? They're supposed to be poor. I'm assuming those are just like locals that they hired as extras. Yeah, and it's it's one of those instances. Reminding us that, oh, there are black people that live in (laughs) Memphis. Oh, this is Memphis. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I thought we were in Germantown. I thought we were in Nashville. (laughs) And, um, yeah, it's just, again, it's, it's all over the place. Like, and then once Rudy, like, wins his whole thing. He obviously because of course he's gonna win. He's it's gonna that win. kind of a movie. Um, they're supposed to get like one third of the money, and he just quits. No, no, no. What the health insurance company files for bankruptcy? Oh yeah, which I did like that he won, but they didn't get the money yeah. because that's one thing where I did like the ultimate message of the movie is that you're fighting things that are operating on a rule set you can't even touch. But so you can have victories, but they're never going to be the kind of victories that you want them to be. It's the question of also knowing that like, t- when these things do happen, sometimes they go to court again to get a smaller claim of whatever. Um, but it was just supposed to be like, Rudy's done. He's sort of like, I don't want to work in this system. The system is corrupt. I will always love the law, but maybe I should just be a professor. And but he's like also I need to cover Kelly. Kelly needs a lot of covering. She needs to heal, and I'm gonna heal her. And which I think the there's a quote I pulled that I found from Deck Danny DeVito's character, which I do think is a really good quote and sort of sums up the theme of the movie is most people give up, and this of course is intended. And so the movie is about sort of when you're dealing with things like health insurance companies, these large monolithic entities that just seem to have infinite money, it is a system that's designed to exhaust you and get you to relinquish Mm -hmm. because they have designed it so that they win all the time, every time. Uh, And so I think it's a... We don't get many movies that say it that plainly. I think oftentimes you think I think like the you know the Muppets where there's you know or like a Lego the movie where it's like Lord evil businessman kind of a thing mm-hmm. where it's almost a cliche but I do like here it was a little more realistic but still I think because of the setting and because Coppola is such a cinephile he's giving you a movie version of Memphis not if you went to Memphis today what you would, or even in '97 if you had gone to Memphis what it would have been like yeah. Uh, it's just very silly. I think it's just also my problem with the fact that uh, they lose, quote unquote, all of them are still satisfied. Yeah, there isn't enough of a sense of like, damn it, we thought we got him this time. Yeah, it's just like he goes to Dot and he's like, Dot, I'm so sorry. And she's just like, I'm I'm just glad that they're, you know, that they're done. That they can't do this anymore. But the whole else. thing is like they just dissolved the corporation. They're gonna form something else. These people yeah, will go or, work other places and do bad things. And it's like it's you know, it's not like one of them going, you know what, I'm gonna work hard to make sure that this never happens again. Like, well he gives up. He's like, I'm not doing this ever again. And like, which is a weird thing because it remind like I think of Aaron Brockovich, that film. Mm-hmm. Which is like it's a she does something different where it's sort of like no she continued on this path well, because she, she was kind of she sees like, how much she was able to help people but she also sees the people she couldn't help and she's like I'm ne- not going to let that keep happening yeah and so she just kept working at and still keeps working yeah. at what she's doing because she's just like then this is going to be my passion to help people 
Rudy's just sort of like, oh well. <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna pay them damn student loans, but uh, <laughs> on a wing and a prayer, I'll make it. Because like, dude, this, I mean, maybe not in 97 after you gra- I mean, I would still think graduating from law school, you're going to have student loans. Uh, but like, really? You're just going to bail? Like, you, yeah, you just got started. Well, this was like the second case you ever yeah, had. Yeah, and it's also like after, because his whole thing was like, oh, you know, I, I it's silly that I did this, but my problem is having to do with like with all the clients that I get, they're going to expect the same magic and it's not going to be the same thing. And you're just basically saying, oh, yeah, I can't deliver the same passion because, you know, Donnie Ray was my best friend. Why was he your best friend, man? Like, <laughs> you knew him for what, mate, at most a year. And <laughs> he was quite a bit younger than you. That's the sense I got. Yeah. So, like, like what? <laughs> it, it just, you're a lawyer. He was a client. What's yeah, going on? Yeah, it's like this weird thing of, like, Instead of maybe being a story of him going like, hey, I got too close and like, I'm going to not get too close again, but I'm going to keep working to help people out. It is just more like, oh, well, I'm, I can't provide the same magic. He's like, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, think about the 90s for Coppola here as we kind of reflect. We've got The Godfather Part 3, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Jack and the Rainmaker. Like once again, just like the 80s. What a wild list of movies. Just, so different. It just convinces me that you are right where he just loves to make movies. He just loves to make movies. He doesn't care what they are. He doesn't care what they are versus like, you know, Scorsese is looking for a certain mood, a certain vibe, a certain something that well, he likes to cling on. Scorsese feels very interested in like a set of themes. Yes. And using his films to explore those themes. Films of like redemption and can a person become so evil that even God will not forgive them kind of a thing. Yeah. And then Coppola, it's like different themes every movie. It's really hard to I, trace, I, I think especially Coppola after the just, 70s. He's just like, I'm just going to make a movie and see what happens. And so it has to be, to a certain extent, very weird. Because, you know, Matt Damon is not the type of actor that I like. Well, he was only cast in this because of Goodwill Hunting, right? Like, yes. That's it. And it was because he was getting off of like that kind of thing. And it's just like... I think to myself, Matt Damon, who has been in a Ford Coppola, uh, Francis Ford Coppola film, has been in a, like Martin Scorsese films, and still is not an but actor that when, I go. Well, when I think about wow. the best performance I saw from him, it was probably in The Departed. That's the best I've ever seen Matt Damon, and even then, he was outshone by a lot of other people in that movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's such a bizarre movie <laughs> and such a bizarre career for Coppola. Uh, I don't know if we will do like a Coppola in the 21st century series because there's not a ton of movies there. I've seen, I think I've seen all the movies he's put out in the 21st century. And Which movies were there? Because I'm just. I can I, only think of two. Mm-hmm. And those may be the only two he's done. Tetro, which stars uh, Vincent uh, Gallo, who I do not like. He's a dude from Buffalo 66. The, oh, the brown yeah. bunny. Like he's the guy. That he's a, like... he's very conservative. Yeah, which was weird. Doesn't make any sense. He's to me. just an edge lord. It sounds and like. then he did a movie called Twixt, which is a vampire movie with Elle Fanning and Val Kilmer. That is horrible. I hated that movie. It just oh, it meandered. It like it just was all over the place. But yeah, and so now right now he's directing uh, Megapolis in Atlanta with Adam Driver and Aubrey Plaza. And he lost, like, three key production members 
of like special effects, production design, things like that. But it's like that happened to him when he did Dracula. So he, yeah, I love he even put out a statement I saw where he was like, eh, "I'm fine." Like, <laughs> he just he, so much has happened to him that like he's just like, "Okay, I'll just hire somebody else to do it." Uh, but yeah, it's I'm glad that we watched all these Coppola movies. Mm-hmm. Because it helps give me context for him in juxtaposition to all these other directors. His name always is thrown in with, he's always thrown in with like Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, Coppola. And he, they're all so different from each other. It's just they all came to popularity around the same time and kind of boosted each other along the way. Yeah, I mean, it's also in a weird way. It's like even his daughter has a completely different vibe. Well, at least she I feel like she has consistent themes. Yeah, her themes is more like, you know, alienation. Alienation, uh being a woman. Yes, being a woman in a world where you're ignored. Yeah, and it's like th- yeah, I do have some things that I'm not cool with her because it's like for example in Begild, she removed a character that was like supposed to be like a black character with well, a main character. She, she's like, much like her father. <laughs> She likes casting white people. <laughs> yes, and it's um, but it's it it's this interesting thing where you're kind of like, yeah, she's a nepotism baby, but she's got she goes like a different route where it's sort of like how I think about how she was supposed to do like the new Little Mermaid, but she was like Disney and I did not agree, so she she pieced out, mm-hmm. which also I think to me shows that she's probably seen the lessons that her father has learned has learned about dealing with these big studios and, and just things, gone so. like i'm not doing what he has done where we haven't heard her say i'm gonna do this big production stuff to only lose a ton of money because when i think about her filmography i can't think of anything she's done that didn't seem like it had some sense of a personal project to her like because yeah. even the remake of the beguiled there wasn't a big audience clamoring for like that Clint, e- like obscure Clint Eastwood movie to be remade. Like, yeah, most people probably don't even know what the Beguiled is. Yeah, and it's it it's also she does work regularly. Like for example, a uh, sample with um, I forgot her name. She was she's that blonde actress. Okay, well that narrows it down to a few hundred. Christian. Kristen Dunst. Yeah, she does a lot yeah. of work Christian Dunst. It's sort of but, like, though. I do feel like with the same thing with Sophia with Francis. I feel like their best work is behind them. Yeah. Which is sad, especially for her, because she's still, I mean, she's a little older than me, I think. But we ha- we're, we have yet to see with her, because yeah. she's still well, got a lot of Well, I mean, I feel like when I think of her last few movies, like The Beguiled and Somewhere, I was so unimpressed. But then, you, like, Marie Antoinette was where I started to go like, huh, I don't know. But then previously, like, Lost in Translation, and then The Virgin Suicides, I still feel is, like, an incredible incredible movie yeah and but again it was it was based off a really good book yeah and so that's yeah so that's where we're going to kind of leave old francis ford for now we may return to him one day maybe not uh i do hope that he makes megapolis if he does i will certainly review it here on the podcast yeah uh because more likely than not that's going to be his final film Well, this has been another episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this one as we do all our episodes. If you check the show notes out, you're going to find links to relevant reviews to anything we might have brought up on our website, popcult.blog. And I'd encourage you to go over there and check it out. We have lots of reviews that go up there uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with extras on the weekend. 
And make sure that you subscribe wherever it is you listen to this podcast so you can be notified when new ones pop up. If you do choose to go over and visit popcult.blog, you're going to find uh, that we have just kicked off a series looking at quote-unquote overlooked 90s movies. You may have heard of these, you probably have, but they're movies that haven't necessarily gotten that much attention, and I kind of wanted to revisit some of them, watch some for the first time, and see if these are movies worthy of our attention. We just did a review of What About Bob, and coming up next we'll be having, um, well, let me see here, we've got Living in Oblivion, which was a very interesting movie to watch for the first time, uh, The Fisher King, Arlington Road, uh, and A Simple Plan, the Sam Raimi film. And they were all very interesting watches, and I hope you'll check out our reviews to see what we thought of them. Uh, if you enjoy what we do on the podcast and what we do over on the blog, we would encourage you to think about supporting us through Patreon. If you check out uh, our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes, you'll find we have many reward levels and some goals we're trying to reach. I want to thank our patrons, Becca and Matt. They both donate at the writer's room level, $10 a month. And among many other things, that affords them the ability to pick a movie for me and I will review it. Uh, it'll be each month, they'll pick a movie, and then I'll review it, and if you choose that, you can also add your own thoughts to the review as well. Uh, this month, I've already reviewed Becca's pick, which was uh, The Menu, Mark Mylod's feature debut, and then coming up at the end of the month, I will be reviewing Matt's pick, which was the Netflix release, kind of went under the radar a small bit, The Wonder, which I found to be a very interesting watch. Uh, so, until next time, keep watching. <laughs>